0: Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, man. So good to sing with y'all. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, if, if you have your own Bible, we're going to be in the Book of Ruth. If you got a shared Bible, I believe it's on page two hundred eight. We are in our second week studying through the Book of Ruth. Uh, we are getting back into preaching verse by verse through particular books of the Bible after having several weeks and a couple topical series. And We studied through Ruth chapter one last week. We'll be in Ruth chapter two this week, and I had a a couple of thoughts I was going to share as an introduction, but as we were singing, you know, one of the things that came to mind as I was thinking about the way we study our Bibles is that a lot of times we can, we can be in dangerous territory to kind of read ourselves into Bible stories, right? So maybe the quintessential example would be that, like, we're the, we're the David to our Goliaths. And, and there's ways in which we can see ourselves in particular stories, but the one particular way I would I would encourage you to view this story, Ruth chapter 2, is that we're going to see a living example of what it means to walk in faith, like in biblical, godly, hopeful faith. And so we should see Ruth in this chapter as really a model to be followed, but then we also, we also see in the midst of Ruth and her life, her steps of faith, and now we're going to be introduced to Boaz today, we're going we're to we're see through them to Jesus himself. And so, I've shared this from up front before, and if you have the Jesus Storybook Bible in your home, many of you who have kids, if you don't, it's a good read, anyways. You'd benefit from it even as an adult. But the main tagline of the Jesus Storybook Bible is every story whispers his name. The name of Jesus, that is. So, we're going to see in Ruth chapter 2, maybe in ways that are unlikely to us on first glance, we're going to see the, the beauty of the gospel. We're going to see it primarily through the way that Boaz relates to Ruth. But we're going to dive in. And the main idea this morning that I want to give you is that our faith makes us hopeful, and that God's favor makes us humble. That our faith makes us hopeful or expectant, and that God's favor makes us humble. And with that said, we'll dive in. Let's go to Ruth chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. It says, Now Naomi She has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So at the center of chapter one, we're gonna pause there. At the center of chapter one, we have basically three women. So you have Naomi, you have Orpah, and you have Ruth. Naomi is the the mother-in-law to both Orpah and Ruth. And if you remember, as they went to and turned to Moab, basically to, to flee famine in Bethlehem, they went to Moab that we saw was basically a, a turn away from God and his people. And in Moab, they experienced a ton of loss. So Elimelech, who is Naomi's husband, died as well as her two sons. So Warren Wiersbe commented that they exchanged one famine for three funerals. And so we talked about just the, the dark clouds in, this, in, in chapter one. It's inescapable to journey through that chapter and not see God's hand and even orchestrating and moving in the midst of their difficulty. And so they, now they come back. So they, they return to Bethlehem now. And we looked at last week this contrast. At the beginning of chapter 1 you see a famine. At the end they return to harvest. And so the return back to Bethlehem is to the, what Bethlehem actually means, the house of bread. And so we were, now we're briefly introduced to this man Boaz. A relative of, of Elimelech who again is Naomi's deceased husband. Is a, is a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. Boaz is a kinsman, which means he's a special family representative, which will become really central to the story. We'll see it again at the end of this chapter. He's called a redeemer, one who had a particular role in the lives of his family. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But this bite-sized introduction to Boaz shines a spotlight on his character. So look look at the description we get very briefly about Boaz. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, a worthy man. It seems to point to both substance and stability. So it seems to be a wealthy, prominent man, as well as a worthy man in his character, a man of substance and stability. And we'll see that in chapter two and throughout the rest of the book. As I was praying this morning, there's some moments where I just feel compelled to kind of lean in and talk to the men just for a second and this will be one of those. I think for you men as we look at Boaz there's some particular ways God wants to bring application to our own lives as men. So if you remember Ruth is written and falls in the context of the book of Judges which was a a period of immense like political upheaval and moral degradation where every Man, every woman, certainly as well, did what was right in their own eyes. And Boaz stands in bright contrast to that dark backdrop. So here's my encouragement for you men. Be different than the world around you. Be men of substance and stability. As you look out at the world around you, who seem to be clamoring for some vision of what it means to be a man, be different. Stand up and take responsibility, care for, love your family more than you love the things of the world. Let your wife and your children, the people around you and your workplaces, let them see you as a source of stability. Let them see you as a man of substance, but be a man who stands out from the culture. Be a man of substance, of high character and deep conviction, and be a man of stability. Be diligent and be even a refuge to other people that's what we're going to see in Boaz all right there's my brief charge to you men but one of the things you see here just like we talked about in our main idea that Ruth's faith made her hopeful so look in verse two so they come now and so Naomi and Ruth are both in really difficult kind of tenuous position as widows in a massively patriarchal society so they're widows Ruth is also a foreigner. She's an immigrant. Both of those things make her really susceptible just in culture in general. And so here she goes and she says, let me go. Like, let me go out and let me gather grain and glean grain from the fields. It seems like a little bit of a practical, like, well, that's, they probably got to eat. So, yeah, she's got to do that. But there's a lot more at play here. This is a really significant step of faith. So far from a casual stroll to the grocery store, For food, Ruth is putting herself in danger in order to provide food both for her and for Naomi. But she says, let me go. And God's kind provision, this is really interesting, but really sweet to remember as well, is that God had his kind provision in the law, actually infused into the law, the provision that God's people in harvest would have to leave the grain behind on the ground as they harvested grain. And it was particularly to care for the poor and the sojourner and the widow. So let me just highlight two brief verses. Leviticus 19.10 says this. says, You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 24, 21 says, When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So built into this culture at harvest time was a provision for people just like Ruth and Naomi. But in a context where everybody does what's right in their own eyes, there's really no guarantee that she's going to be able to wander into the field and find a landowner to be favorable to her. But she says, let me go. And this assurance, and I love the expression of faith just in a a simple sentence. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Like, there is no promise that we know of. There's no even indication. In fact, we probably see otherwise. There's, There's no indication that Ruth had any idea where Boaz's field was. She was just going out to try to find food. She had no assurance that the place where she was going to land was going to be a place favorable to her endeavor. But she trusted the Lord. She said, I'm going to go, I'm going to glean, and there's going to be someone who I'm going to find favor in their eyes. You see that? And in that, there's this bold faith, this hopeful, expectant faith that she walks in and even though verse 1 introduces us to Boaz by name and family connection, as I mentioned, there's no indication she knew where Boaz's field was. And in fact, there's some fairly comical language used here, but it's really significant. So go to verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The, 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 the word in the language means she chanced. In her chance, she chanced upon his field. Now, there's no serendipity in God's economy. This really is a sovereign provision from God. That she just happens, from her perspective, happened upon this field. It just happened to be Boaz, who was a kinsman for Naomi's husband, Elimelech, who's passed away. God's gracious, faithful governance over all Things. One of the interesting things I think about the wording here that happened to is also translated grants in other places. It's, it was granted to her to find Boaz's field. And here's one thing I think, when we think about biblical faith, like what does it look like? We're gonna talk about the way Ruth is diligent. But one of the things I think it's good for us as Christians to remember is that God often grants as we go. So we think about pursuing or needing certain things, heard a pastor joke about one time, like, for, he was preaching to singles. And he was talking about, like, them looking for a spouse. And he jokingly said, you know, we just, for some of us, we just sit around and be like, I'm just going to wait for the Lord to bring her to me. And he's like, well, you don't do that with your dinner. So like you go out and you get some food, right? So in this case, too, it's not like you just, they could just sit at home. Like Naomi and Ruth, you sit at home and just be like, Lord, we're just going to trust you to bring some. That's not what, that's not biblical faith, because faith has feet. Think of it this way. Like one of the worst culinary experiences is when you get like a flat soda. Anybody ever had that experience and hate it as much as I do? Okay. But think of it this way. Like faith isn't flat. Like it bubbles with activity. Like that's a, that's a picture I think we could use. It's so faith isn't apathetic. That it has motion and movement and we pursue and oftentimes God even redirects even in our choice it doesn't mean that we're kicking down doors and trying to force our way through things but certainly God has a way of granting even as we go to show us his plan but again this isn't serendipity this is God's sovereignty Daniel Block a Bible commentator said it this way he says the same hand that had sent the famine and later provided food is the hand that had brought Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem precisely at the beginning of the harvest and has now guided ruth to that portion of the field belonging specifically to boaz maybe some of us need to hear this morning the simple but profound truth is that god is always at work like he's always at work and he's always doing more than you can see will we trust him when we can't see Maybe that's our biggest challenge. Like, will we, will we work while we wait? Will we continue to be faithful to him in the waiting? And just as Ruth happened upon Boaz's field, it's in verse four, if you go there, it says, and behold, it's like, hey, look at this. Look who shows up. Boaz comes just in the right time to encounter Ruth. I love the language. Y'all didn't seem to like that as much as I did, but we'll go with it behold Boaz came from Bethlehem and right at the right time Ruth is there she's in the field and she's working and he has this exchange with the reapers like who is this who is this young woman in my field that I don't know right Boaz the godly man of prominence greets his employees with grace which is a really interesting part again for those for the men but particularly just maybe even those who have employees those of us who work in the world which is all of us, outside of me and Chris, we're the only pastors working for the church, everybody else working out in the culture, in the marketplace, right? And Nick, I guess too, there's three of us in here. Sorry, that was a little bit of a rabbit trail. But one of, one of the questions I thought of this morning is just how is your faith displayed in the field? Like how is your faith displayed in your workplace? If you're an employer, is this in some way the way that you greet your employees? Maybe not verbatim, but do they sense in you a stability and substance? Do they do they find you pointing to God as your center and your foundation? As that which gives you and compels you to, to show them grace? Is there consistency, stability? Are your words gracious? Is the Lord visible? But he says, the Lord be with you. And they said, the Lord bless you as well. So the young man in charge of the reapers informs Boaz about Ruth. You can look there with me. Verse five, Boaz said to this young man, who's this young woman, servant who's in charge of the reapers, said she's the young Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Again, just some emphasis put on the fact that Ruth was a sojourner. She was a foreigner in the land. You see, although you see, although Ruth's faith made her hopeful, it didn't make her presumptuous or lazy. And I love the fact she she comes to the field, and although she anticipates finding favor, she looks at the reapers, assumedly, or maybe this young man who is the head of the reapers, and she's like, "Please let me glean." There wasn't a presumptuousness, there wasn't a laziness, because she's actively working. But there's this graciousness and appeal to like, "Would you allow me to glean?" In these fields, Ruth's hopeful faith was combined with hard work. Proverbs thirteen four says, "The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied." As I mentioned, faith isn't flat; it's bubbling with activity. Trusting God will lead, work, and provide along the way. Let's continue to read in verse eight. And she continued to work from early morning until now. This is end of verse seven, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now this is the first exchange between Boaz and Ruth. Now listen, my daughter, do not glean, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know 4. Listen to this beautiful language. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. And here's a declaration of her faith under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's the reason ultimately that she turned to come to Bethlehem. Then she said, I have found favor. That's the third time we've heard the word favor. I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant though I am not one of your servants. At a mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. And we'll pause there. Boaz's care for Ruth is a beautiful demonstration. Men, if I could harken back to you for a moment. It's a beautiful demonstration of how godly men provide protection and provision to the vulnerable. Are we that? As men. Are we a source of protection and provision as God allows to the vulnerable and the needy, whether it be among us, in our families, in the church body, culture. It's not hard to imagine all the other scenarios Ruth could have walked into, all the other types of landowners she could have encountered, again, in a culture where every man did what was right in his own eyes. It's very easy, easy to surmise the fact she could have gone into a field and been, been abused by an abusive landowner, manipulated He can have food if you do this. It's not very difficult to paint the different scenarios she could have walked into. But Boaz is quite the contrary. In a culture where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, Boaz is a beacon of biblical manhood, gentleness, kindness, and concern. Mark his words and his approach to Ruth. His first words to her, my daughter, stay in my field, keep close to my young women. These aren't dismissive words. These are more disarming words. My daughter, let me just speak to you in familial terms so you feel protected and cared for. And He speaks about the ways in which he has brought about even her protection in the situation. Keep close to my young women. You can be with them, right? They'll, They'll tell you what to do and where to go and when to do it. It'll go well with you if you stay with them. I've also instructed my young men not to put any sort of hand on you, not to touch you at all. gives us a hint culturally as to what it meant to be a man in that moment in culture. I've charged the young men not to touch you. Boaz used his resources and status to benefit and protect Ruth. His actions paved a way for her to successfully and safely provide for her needs and the needs of Naomi. And Boaz's generosity to Ruth was counterculture. Like even even allowing her to drink from water already drawn by the Israelites. Like just culturally, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been normal for a foreigner to just draw from water that had been drawn by the Israelites. In fact, foreigners would have to draw water for the Israelites and drink second. But he's like, hey, just, just take what has been drawn. And we'll see that theme continue to play out. And his counterculture generosity but what happened with Ruth when she encountered the favor of God through Boaz It made her humble she anticipated God's favor but even at the moment she experienced it, it overwhelmed her a church family I would say this there's something in this it's like every time we come into this room And I think you hear me pray for it. You saw saw it in Pastor Chris. You heard it from his voice as he commended us even to listen to God's word. And you saw even just the tenderness in which he's responding to God's word and recalling to mind the ways in which God has ministered to him. When we come into this room, there's always a temptation to be familiar with holy things and to not be amazed by grace because we've heard about it thousands of times. And it's good for us to anticipate God meeting with us here. Being amongst us in our fellowship. His glory resounding through these walls. We sing his praise. It's good to anticipate that. Like expectant of it. Hopeful for it. But are we in the most biblical sense of the word overwhelmed by it? Humbled by it? Humbled by the fact that God's mercy never comes to an end. My guess is every single one of us have failed this week in something. And the next day, when you woke up and put your feet on the ground, new mercy was there to meet you. Just like me. Why? There's no end to the mercy of God. It's unbelievable the way he provides for us. His faithfulness really is to every generation. It never ceases. And Ruth felt the magnitude of this. There's no doubt she acted uprightly in her commitment to and care for Naomi. We see Boaz speak to that. People had heard about her in Bethlehem. But Ruth knew she was unworthy of receiving the privileges she was given. And she was greatly humbled by the favor, acceptance, comfort, all words we could apply to the word favor. And when she experienced the the very same favor she expected when she went, she was still overwhelmed by it when she got it. Are we that way? Like overwhelmed by, like just amazed by the grace of God that we get to be forgiven. Asking questions just like Ruth did like why? Like why have I found favor in your eyes? Like who am I? How could it be? Right. Those are all really good questions that kind of stoke in our hearts the mystery of the favor of God. Like why would you, why would you be so gracious to, to save and preserve me, a, a sinner, a fallen person? How is it that your favor would be poured out on one so unworthy? We see a glimpse of this in Psalm eight. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, when I see how awesome you are, in verse 4, what is a man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Who am I? And he ends with a declaration of, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'm overwhelmed by who you are. Maybe it feels something like this, like, God, I believe you're good, but but look at your goodness to me. Like, I, I believe you're faithful, but I can't, I could never imagine faithfulness like this in my life. I believe that you're my provider, but you have been so remarkably generous to me, so I believe it but I experience it, and I'm overwhelmed by the way in which it's actually taken place. God, I believe you're my protector, but the way you have comforted me in my affliction defies logic. I'm over like who am I? And Boaz's response to Ruth, he talks about her faith. Ruth returned to Bethlehem with Naomi to a place and people that were not her own, but her arrival in Bethlehem signaled something more Significant. We saw last week one of the more famous passages, if not the most famous in this book, like your God will be my God as part of her declaration today. No, I'm not going to leave you. Your people will be my people. Where you live, I'll live. Your God will be my God. Where you're going to die, I'm going to die there. Nothing can take me away from you. And That declaration is made really clear in this moment as Boaz declares that, you, that as you came back to Bethlehem, it's the Lord, it's the God of Israel that you sought to take refuge in and that's why you're here. And may he repay you according to your faith in him. I love this picture, this protection and refuge under God's wings. This is all over the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 91, 4. It says, he, God, will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler or wall, a protective shield. Ruth walked in hopeful faith in the God of Israel. And we look at her example, and and you could just say, what about me? Like, am I walking by faith in God's promises and his faithfulness? Am I willing to step out and trust him? Am I willing to, to, to work, as it were, and to labor with my eyes open to the ways he might redirect But to be sure, Ruth had come to Bethlehem to take refuge in him. And the way Boaz cares for Ruth in this moment is a brilliant picture of how God deals with his people, as I mentioned at the beginning. And this is what I'll close with, looking at Boaz. As we look at Boaz, we're looking through Boaz to Jesus himself. Here's a couple observations about God's favor. It's it's a word that we see three times in this text. You go back to verse two, it's there. I shall find favor. Verse 10, why have I found favor? In verse 13, then she said, I have found favor. Why don't we do this? Let's read verses 14 through around 19. It says, in a mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, her mother-in-law, saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. I kind of got ahead of myself there, but the first thing I want to share with you is in the previous part, And this picture is, as Ruth talks about being a foreigner, like who am I that you would welcome me in as a foreigner? Who am I that you'd welcome me in even though I'm not one of your servants? Like God's favor takes foreigners and makes them family. What's really interesting, one of the ways in which as we look at the Old Testament, we can connect it with the New Testament, there's a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. A lot of times it's really interesting to see how the interpreters, what Greek words in the New Testament were translated that same way in the old. And this is a really neat picture here. So if you go to Ephesians chapter two, a passage we preached on a few years ago, Ephesians two twelve and 19, you're gonna see some familiar terms here. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's talking to non-Jews, to Gentiles. Then in verse nineteen, because of what Christ has done, he says, "So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God." So the word for foreigner or stranger here in Ephesians two is the same word used in Ruth two ten when she talks about being a stranger. Why is it significant? Because it's God's favor who makes foreigners family in the old and in the new. He's the only one that can fold into his family foreigners who have no right to be such. And that's the picture that Paul is driving home in Ephesians 2 is that God, in his unique work through Jesus, through the cross of Christ and his resurrection, he's made the two, Jew and Gentile, into one family, the supernatural, peculiar family, all saved by the same grace of Jesus. And like a true family member, Ruth is invited to eat at the table with Boaz. So just think about it. This is all one day. Like this is craziness. So she, I mean, she walked out. You can see her kind of walking out of the house. Like Naomi's like, hey, go, my daughter. She's like, all right, here I go. I'm gonna go walk into the fields. By faith, I'm gonna go get some grain. In the same day, by lunchtime, she is sitting at the table with the landowner. He's like, hey, why don't you just take some of this bread and dip it in the wine? She's sitting right next to him with the reapers. I'm just going to conjecture on my part. I'm going to anticipate. Ruth maybe didn't fully anticipate the favor of God happening in this way. She would have been satisfied with enough food for the day. But now she's eating at the table with the landowner? Like the head of the family? She gets to be there dipping her bread in the same cup that he's using? Do you see the picture? Like what, what right do I have to be at the table with the king? But God's favor makes foreigners into family. And he invites us to, to his table to, to have dinner with him and with his people. And she ate and she was satisfied. She started by scrapping for the leftovers and now she's eating at the head of the table with him. Unbelievable picture. And God's favor abundantly satisfies the hungry. It's the second thing I want to share about God's favor. Ruth ate and was satisfied, and she also had, I love the fact she had leftovers, right? Biblical leftovers. The word satisfied is used a couple times, trying to accentuate. She ate, and everything that she needed was met, and then some. Her hunger is met with abundant satisfaction. More than she needed, she received. Sounds a whole lot like the way Jesus fed the 5,000. The meager loaves, five of them. The meager fish, just two of them. Feed the 5,000 plus. Do so you remember what happened after everybody was satisfied? They had leftovers. And the wording sounds so familiar. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Hunger crushed with. Abundance. Now, S- Snickers has had a, a like a uh, whatever. It's not a logo, but a moniker over the years, and it's changed. Like now, it's like "want to get away" or something like that. But years ago, it was Snickers really satisfies? Anybody remember that? I think that's an older. That's from like the '90s or something. Why am I bringing this up? It's because there's. As we're, t- as we're <laughs> I'm not sure. We'll see. Just wait. As we talk about bread, as we sing about bread, it is good to remember this is not just a story about God's provision for physical needs. It does demonstrate that, that God takes care of his people. But it's demonstrating something far greater that God provides bread that really satisfies, not just for today, but eternally. We saw that. We read it earlier when Josh read John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life but they they wanted the bread like give us this bread all the time that's a that's, we probably say the same thing hey give us this bread like let us drink the water John chapter 4 like hey let us have this kind of water that never leaves us dry or never leaves us hungry and Jesus said I'm the one like I am that bread And maybe someone in this room needs to hear really clearly is if you clamor for the bread in this world, you think will satisfy? It's all just a mirage compared to the real thing. Jesus is the only bread that satisfies. He's the only water that quenches thirst. Find yourself satisfied in him. And I'll finish with this last kind of comment about Boaz's generosity Because he gives her, he invites her to the table, again, kind of mind-blowing progression from walking out of the the door, hopeful, but wondering where the food's gonna come from. Now he's like, he talks to his reapers, like, hey, don't just give her what's left over on the ground. Why don't you give her some from what you've already bundled up? Give her some from the sheaves. Then he says this, maybe in a way that kind of hints to the romantic connection at some level, careful with that. This isn't just a Hallmark movie, but maybe, just maybe, there's a connection starting to happen. He's eating with her at the table, He's like, hey, maybe just so she doesn't feel like a charity case, I want you to take some from the sheaves. I want you to drop it in on the ground so she can pick that up so it's more than sufficient for her needs. Generosity upon generosity, abundance upon abundance. She starts the day assumedly needing food. She ends the day shaking off all that she's gathered, and the amount that she has is... An ephah, three-fifths of a bushel. I had to do some research. I'm like, I don't, I'm just, I'm not a farmer. I don't make my own bread. How much is this? Roughly enough for 672 pieces of bread. That's a lot of sandwiches. (laughs) But the picture, again, is not just, this is really cool the way God gave her bread. he gave her more than she anticipated. Certainly more than she deserved based on her response. And in this, we see the gracious, generous, kind provision of God. And she gets leftovers. And Naomi greets her and she's like, where have where you, like, you been? She's like carrying, like you see her picture like this, she's carrying this stuff, you got leftovers, like a sack cider. I don't know what you put leftovers in back in the day, but... She walks up, and he was like, whoa, like, where are you, what, whose field you been in today? And it was Boaz. And we're going to get in next week to the picture of him being the, the kinsman redeemer, which has really become very relevant for the next chapter. But I want to finish with this. Isaiah 55, and this is my word to those in this room who have never trusted in Jesus, the one thing I want you to know is you may be more mindful right at this moment of all the ways that you have failed. The abundance of your failure, the abundance of your brokenness, inward and outward. And if that's you this morning, I want you to hear this word from Isaiah 55. And it talks about the abundance that God provides. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Make that today let the wicked forsake his way. That's all of us. We're all wicked and the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he, the Lord, may have compassion on him and to our God, here it is for you for he will abundantly pardon. Abundant grace for abundant sin. Where our sin abounds, the grace of God abounds all the more, more than we could ever imagine or expect certainly more than we deserve. So I pray that you run to him today to find satisfaction for your soul, pardon for your sin, and for us as God's people, I pray that we be those who walk in hopeful faith, being assured of his promises, humbled in a way that God abundantly forgives us, and that every single day, God will give us the grace to wake up and expect more of the same. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.